Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Andy shares a sermon out of Acts chapter 24 titled, Scarcity is Not Loving Well. What is the advantage of doing nothing when a need is placed before us? Doing nothing feels safe, costs us nothing, and avoids having to enter the messy realities of a situation. Scarcity believes that if I give of my time, energy, or money, there won't be enough, so we hold back. You have people in your life right now that are in need. They need to be loved well. They are your children, your spouses, your grandchildren, your friends, and the people sitting next to you. Would you be willing to go to war against the lie of scarcity that you don't have enough so you can love well? Good morning, friends. Hi, everybody online. I got a new shirt from Kohl's. $14.99 out of cold cash. If you don't know it, sign up today. Oh, it's so good to be with you, friends. I'm so excited about Taco Tuesday on Valentine's Day. Uh, hey, if you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are so glad that you're here. Uh, one of the things that we do every week as a church is we just come back into the place of being centered in the gospel. There's three things that we, that we see all throughout the story of Scripture. First is, and this is at the heart of the gospel, right? The, the gospel starts, ooh, Sturts? It, it stirred first starts. It, no, the gospel starts with a diagnosis, right? We are more broken than we want to admit. And so that's the first thing we see in Scripture. But the gospel doesn't end there. We're, we're more loved than we could ever dare to hope. Our identity isn't our brokenness. Our identity is, is that we were once lost and now we are found. We were once dead and now we are alive because of Jesus. So we see this story in Scripture all the time, that there is always, first and foremost, hope beyond our brokenness. So no matter where you are today, we're glad you are here. Everybody has a faith journey. Everybody has a journey of understanding and trusting who God is as God reveals himself deeper and deeper in your life. And we get to learn how to trust God more together. It's not a, a solo adventure. We get to do that together. Second, we believe that we, there is trust in our risen Savior. So we don't perform for God or each other, right? The moment you stepped into this church, it was perfect, and now it's not anymore, <laughs> right? Uh, so let's not pretend that we're all fine and paint, paint the white picket fence of our religiosity. Uh, we're not interested in doing that here. All of us got problems. Look at the person next to you and say, you're messed up. Uh, <laughs> Right? I mean, I mean, like, I, I, I know most of you, and y'all got serious problems, right? Uh, and so do I. So do I. Like, just because I got a degree and a new shirt from Kohl's doesn't mean everything's fine, right? Uh, so what do we do? So we can perform. We can pretend. Uh, we can say, oh, there's victory with Jesus, and I have no more sin in my life, you know, which is a nice religious way of saying, I don't want to be honest. But trust requires honesty. Trust requires courage. Trust requires you to be, have, be on the greatest adventure of your life where you lay down uh, your resistance to, to actually surrender, and, and you begin to be vulnerable with yourself and with God and with each other. And again, we don't do that alone. We do that together. 
And finally, we get to bring restoration. And you're going to hear all about this today. We get to love well. I'm going to define that later, what loving well means. We don't get to, uh, when we love people, we, we don't, um, it's not thoughts and prayers. It's actually rest, restoring, it's resurrection, it's what was dead is now alive because we as a community of faith are loving people back to life. And we are doing that in ways that I, uh, y'all are an answer to a 20-year prayer that I've had. What God is doing right here, right now, feels like a revival, and because it is. It just simply is. And so I'm so grateful for you. We, each one of these truths comes with a choice, which we make every single week together. And the idea is, is to help you make that choice every single day. So can we declare this and choose this again this morning? Can we say this together? And if you're online, even if you're in bed, just scream it out. Ready? We are disciples who walk intentionally with God. Therefore, I choose to be changed by Jesus. I choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection work. So, can I have permission to speak to your hearts? I want to I talk to you today about, the, uh, about one of the things that actually destroys faith more than anything else, and it's this idea of scarcity. But in order for me to have permission to do that, immediately everything within you is going to want to resist that. And so I'm asking right now if, we could, if I could just pray for us again and that we would have a moment where our resistance will go down and we'd be willing to, to actually listen in a way that, that would challenge us and grow us and change us. Can I do that? So Jesus, we bind up everything opposed to you that's in this place and on us or bothering us now in Jesus' name that would cause us to go squirrel instead of actually listening to you. And Jesus, we also just uh, bind up and mute all resistance in us. God, we want your will, your kingdom to be done in our lives. We want your heart to be our hearts, your thinking to be our thinking. As Holy Spirit, you, you have welded yourself to us. We are now new in you. And, and so we say to our own souls, awaken, O oh my soul, and all that it is within me. We glorify you today, Jesus. We give you honor today. And for those who are this morning that do not, do not yet trust you, God, I just pray today would be a moment where they could feel you and sense you and hear about your love for them uh, and that things would make sense to them and click to them. Because we know that faith is not absent from reason. It's actually... It's every good reason in the world that causes us to trust you, Jesus. So we love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in your name. Amen? Amen. Okay, y'all, we are nearing our time in the book of Acts. We've been here for the last 11 years as a church, and, uh, and uh, we're just a couple more weeks. Uh, we'll preach this week, and then we've got two more sermons after this. Uh, I'll preach one, and then Paul's going to bring it home. Um, so I'm so excited about that. T- today I want to talk with you. Uh, again, about loving well, loving the way that Jesus loves, um, uh, not, not, not loving the way that, um, that requires a minimum effort, but loving in a way that when people walk away from you, they go, I don't know what it's like, but when I'm with them and I'm loved by them, it just feels like God's loving me. So last week, 
in the book of Acts, this is chapter 23 of the book of Acts, Paul is hauled before the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation. It's called the Sanhedrin. And in a series of brilliant moments, Paul has the entire court fighting each other rather than him. And the chief of police hauls Paul out of the melee and takes him once again back to the barracks, where that night, Paul sits in prison yet again, unjustly, yet again, and Jesus himself shows up to Paul. Shows up in the spirit, but Paul can see him and hear him. And in the book of Acts, it's, if you have a Bible that has red letters where Jesus speaks, it's literally red letters there. Jesus shows up and speaks to him and encourages him and say, Paul, I want to encourage you. You've, you've preached the gospel here in Jerusalem, and now I want to have you go and preach it to Rome. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus showed up in my bedroom in the middle of night, I would be encouraged. Would you be encouraged? And I would think to myself, things are about to get better, right? At least that's what my entitlement would say, because entitlement always says, well, God should give me what I want, when I want, how I want it, because I deserve it. That's what entitlement says. And we believe this lie all the time. So when things go sideways in our life, we almost always think that either God is doing one of two things, either punishing us or neglecting us, or that the third option is that, well, then God must then not exist. But that's not real life, nor is it how God works. When I work out with Sherrod, and you can work out with him on Tuesdays and Saturdays for free at the church, Uh, when I work out with Sherrod, uh, Sherrod isn't bothered when my, when my muscles scream and my pain is high and I'm sweating and I'm totally uncomfortable. He, as a physical trainer, he is not bothered by that at all. <laughs> Why? Because he knows that the end result is going to be good. I complain, I whine, I scream, I curse at Sherrod. There's two phrases in this church that are very common here, which is praise Jesus and dang it, Sherrod. Uh, <laughs> Right? So, like your personal trainer, God will build strength and hope and life and joy into your soul, even if the process is difficult. Difficult is not bad, it's just difficult. But it builds in you a steel that you need for what's next. You think to yourself, oh God, why are you doing this to me now? Because you're about to bear weight of your family, of your, of your future, of your, of your destiny. You're about to go into battle against powers and principalities for the sake of people you love, and you need steel in your soul in order to do that. And that's not puppy dog kisses and butterflies in order to get there. You actually have to train. Oh, someone say amen. <laughs> we are not entitled to dictate how God will set up the next miracle in, lo- in life. Nor are we entitled to dictate to have everything perfectly amazing after a time of prayer and worship in which Jesus himself shows up. So let's read what happens next. Verse 12. Are you ready? The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. There you go. Not good. I don't know about you. Have you ever had 40 men? Say, I'm not going to eat or drink until you're dead. <laughs> Highly motivated, by the way. 
not eating or drinking, like there's only a window there where you have enough energy to kill somebody, so their urgency is high. Check out what happens next. Verse 14. Read this with me. Slowly, they went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Say what? You ever gone to your pastor and be like, Andy, I'm not going to eat or drink anything until I kill that person. I mean, I've had a lot of awkward meetings at church, but not that one, right? I've had a lot of strange things said in my office, but not that one, right? Then they continue. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case, and then we'll kill him before he gets here. And you know what the chief, you know what the pastors say? Okay. <laughs> what? I don't know if they do that in the Baptist church or what, but like we don't do that here. Just FYI, right? Ain't no plots to kill nobody gonna be passed formally by a vote, okay? Crazy. So what does Jesus do? How does Jesus get Paul out of this one? Verse 16, read this with me. But when the son of Paul's sister heard about this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Word gets around. Paul's nephew maybe worked at the deli. He says, hey, do you want your usual order, you know, Bob? And the guy's like, nah, nah, I can't eat or drink anything until I kill that Paul guy. And Paul's nephew's like, oh, snap, really, what? Hmm? Say, who are you going to kill? Right? He's like, oh, I, you know, no sandwiches for me until that guy goes. So he now he warns Paul so Paul can do something. Verse 17, read with me. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. You got something to tell him. <laughs> Don't delay. <laughs> right? This is not a, oh, just do it on Tuesday. No, no, it's now. Right? Now, now, now. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. <clears throat> Don't delay. Now. Okay? The kid tells the commander the entire plot. We're going to skip that. Then the commander responds with, in verse 22. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. This is not him being dismissive. This is just a, okay, now I'm going to give you directions. Don't tell anyone you reported this to me. So the commander goes, shh, be very, very quiet. <laughs> verse 23. Then the commander called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Lake Tahoe tonight. They're in Jerusalem. They're going to go to Caesarea, which is the major city west of Lake Tahoe, a.k.a. Galilee. Provide horses for Paul so that you may be taken safely to Governor Felix. And this right here is a bummer for those 40 guys not going to eat or drink until Paul's dead. <laughs> right? I mean, they see 300-plus soldiers, spearmen, you know, in cavalry, which is basically like light-armored vehicles, infantry, and they're like, anybody want to get a sandwich? Like, it ain't happening, man. It's not, there it is. So Paul escapes to Caesarea. Maybe, finally, he can get a fair trial. Chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea. Jerusalem's 2,500 feet. Caesarea's lower. Went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. 
and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Again, another courtroom drama begins. Tertullus, the lawyer for the Jews, makes his case. Paul then makes his, and what's the judge's verdict? It's basically the repetition of what we've been talking about the last two weeks. We're going to skip these verses just for time. Verse 22, then Governor Newsom, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Read with me. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. What's the judgment? The, the judgment is no judgment yet. There is no judgment. Verse 23, order the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. So Paul gets a low jack put on his ankle, and he can be in the grounds, but he can be with his buddies. And his buddies, at this time, if you were in prison, your family had to feed you. That's the way it is in every prison in the world except in our prison system. If you are a prisoner in somewhere else in the world, you better hope your family gets you food. Otherwise, you'd be in trouble. Verse 24, several days later. Read this with me. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla. She, Drusilla is the older stepsister of Cinderella. You know her, right? <laughs> Who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Some scholars think that Drusilla actually will become a Christian during this time. Um, she was so intrigued about what uh, Paul was saying, but not her husband. Verse 25. As Paul talked about, read this with me, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. When I find it convenient, you're going to waste away in prison. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. Why is Felix afraid? Well, he doesn't want to talk about the fact that he can't make himself better. That there is no such thing as self-control when your spirit is bound as a slave to sin. That there never will be a moment where you can master yourself and save yourself. He didn't want to hear that. He doesn't want to hear about the judgment to come while he insists on being the judge of himself and everybody else around him. He doesn't want to hear Jesus' words, you shall not judge in Matthew 6, otherwise you'll be judged. He doesn't want to understand the principle that there is one good judge and the diagnosis is you deserve death because of your sin and so I'll send a substitute to die in your place. He doesn't want to hear that. And he doesn't want to hear that that substitute grants us a righteousness that we can never earn. So all of a sudden, we're taken from profound debt all the way to forgiven and then deposited into our account a righteousness that we could never earn. That is the hope and the glory of the gospel. And it is also the diagnosis that I can't save myself. Felix doesn't like those answers. He's like, uh, I'm the governor, so I'm doing pretty well for myself. So I think I don't need the Jesus guy. He's like savior for weak people, but not for me because I'm so great. So what does Felix want? Verse 26. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently 
and talked with him. Huh. Even the great Governor Newsom himself needs money. Verse 27. Ready? This is going to be the shocker. Here it is. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, who, because, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Wait, what? Yeah. Paul was in prison there in Caesarea for two years. Felix does nothing for two years. And that decision, that strategy is at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. So here's my question to you. What's the advantage of doing nothing when a need is placed before us? Well, there seems to be a lot of advantages, advantages of doing nothing. First, you avoid all risk, right? Doing nothing doesn't cost you anything. At least you think so. Doing nothing feels safe because someone brings their need before us, and then we can go, oh, that's nice. I'll, just, I'll be back over here. You just stay over there with that, and I'll just be over here. It feels safe. Doing nothing also allows us to do what we want, because when someone brings a need before you, it, it, it could and probably does impose on your time, your energy, your effort, your budget. And so doing nothing allows us to keep on doing what we want to do. Let me frame doing nothing like this. First, there's the middle sort of value neutral of doing nothing. There's loving well, and now the other end is doing harm. Does that make sense? So imagine a need is placed before you. What are your options? Well, you can do harm, which is cruel, but we're not those people, right? Right. So five of you are not those people, and the rest of you are honest. So those five people will say, right, rethink it, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. Not all of you are cruel. Uh, you can do nothing which feels neutral. You're not harming. We think, oh, that's good. At least I'm not harming someone. Or you can meet the need with your love. Now, let's do a little bit of nuance here because uh, uh, nuance is essential. We aren't people that are cruel. So instead of harm, maybe we just uh, withhold uh, help, right? We're, we don't... See, the thing about doing nothing is that... Is that is that there's an option there, which is, is that you actually need to make a response. And so when you make a response to do nothing and you withhold something, then that's sliding towards doing harm. Maybe because uh, you resent the snot out of that person. Someone you don't like comes before you, a family member, a friend, a coworker, and they say, I need your help. And then you think to yourself, <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And so we withhold help as a way of punishing or bringing justice or whatever. You can handle it by yourself. Maybe we think to ourselves, if I give this person time, energy, money, love, resources, well, they're just going to waste it. So I'll withhold it because they don't deserve it. Well, but you say, well, no, 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 Andy, doing nothing isn't harming them, right? Well, let me ask you a question. When you come to someone at work or, or at home or in your family or with your friend groups and, and, and you need them and they do nothing, how do you feel? 
Do you feel loved? No. When they withhold help from you, how do you feel? You, you feel harmed. You know that they're not doing actively cruel things to you, but their withholding help hurts still. It's just a different kind of hurt. Resentment, by the way, is how we move from doing nothing to doing harm. And every time someone hurts you, you will be resentful towards them, and you will slide from doing nothing to doing harm. This is why Jesus says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Jesus says, Paul or Peter says to him, how many times am I going to forgive? And he goes, 70 times 70, which is the idea of that you forgive, that you continually not be the person's judge. Hand them over to God. I don't want to judge them. I want to pray for my enemies. I don't want to slide from doing nothing into doing harm because we don't want to be cruel people. Amen? And you'll see why here in the moment. So here's this person before you with a need. We don't want to harm them, but we're not also really interested in interrupting our sleep or our schedule or our budget with meeting that need by loving them well. So we choose to move towards loving well with uh, thoughts and prayers. Even though we don't really think about them that often, nor do we pray for them really at all other than, oh, God, help them. And then that's it, right? So we're not doing nothing. We're not harming them. We're not really loving them well either. Well, what's the impact? You ever pour out your heart before a friend? You just give them, you just like barf your whole life, and they go, so how about them chiefs? (laughs) Or they listen for a moment, and they're like, man, that's really tough. So anyways, about me. Or they go... God bless you. Oh, bless your heart. I'll be thinking of you. How do you feel? I tell you how you feel. You you don't feel like you be like you're worthy of love. You feel like your friend or your family member has given you the bare minimum effort to to do something that's that's nice kind of loving, but it almost feels patronizing. And we do this all the time. We delay offering help. We prioritize ourselves above others. We don't lay our lives down for our friends. We, we, we offer our, ourselves to another person after our priorities are taken care of. So when we feel like all our needs are met, then we'll love. When all of our rest is accomplished, then we'll love. When we have everything that we need, then we'll love. When they're sorry enough, then we'll love. When I have enough, then I'll give. So we're not doing nothing, but we're not loving well either. So what's the impact? Well, the impact is the same person walks away, you walk away feeling like you're not loved. So Felix doesn't help Paul, but he's not harming Paul. He's just doing nothing. Why? Well, Felix wanted money. What's that about? That's about scarcity. Scarcity says, I don't have enough time, money, sleep, energy, resources, opportunities. The list goes on. 
I don't have enough. <coughs> I don't have enough moments or days when I'm out of pain. I don't have enough uh, opportunities here. I don't have enough wisdom. I don't have enough smarts. I don't have enough capabilities. I don't have enough leeway. I don't have enough bandwidth. I don't have enough energy. I don't have enough clarity. I don't have enough. That's what scarcity says. Scarcity will cause you to lose your faith in God in a hurry. Think about this with me just for a moment. If I believe the life scarcity that I don't have enough time, then when someone asks me to love them, what will I do? I will give them nothing or a tiny little bit of time. You ever been with someone who is anxious to leave? How does that feel? Hey, can you help me? Fine, I'm just in a hurry. Just go. Can we get this going? Go. Okay, fine, I got to go. How does that feel to be around them? It stinks. And the result, well, the help that you need isn't met. So you're alone in it. You feel discouraged. The thing that you hope that you needed, would accomplish that you needed help with is delayed because they're in a hurry because they believe this life scarcity that they don't have enough time. And then what do you think to yourself? God, I asked for help. I asked for help and I need help now. So I guess, God, you really don't answer prayers in real time. You don't really intervene in the practical things of my life because here I am crying out for help and then the person that you're helping me, like, I'm not getting any help. Scarcity destroys faith. Can you see it? How about this one? If I believe the lie of scarcity that I don't have enough money, when someone is in need, what's, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to give them either nothing or I will give them the bare minimum just to satisfy and pacify the lie of scarcity that's whispering in my ear, you don't have enough for that. I have a family member that literally in our family just inherited a half a million dollars. Sweet. She washes her saran wrap and reuses it. We were with her the other day. She pulled out. She was wearing her friend's coat. She pulled out a used Kleenex and went, oh, there's still some good stuff here. Her house is paid off. She's literally buying a house on the coast right now. And she feels like she doesn't have enough money to do laundry that often, so she's not washing her clothes. She owns a washer and dryer. She's a freaking millionaire. But she believes the lie of scarcity, so even though you're rich, you feel poor when you have scarcity in your life. Scarcity destroys faith. What about generosity? Forget it if you have scarcity. What about giving to the point where it's actually a sacrifice? Forget it if you have scarcity. You can't give that way. And then, and then what happens? If, if I am desperate for financial help and I go, God, help me, and here's a person with millions of dollars and they give nothing, right? Then my, my faith in God is like, well, okay, fine. I mean, great. Okay, I, this is delayed or like i confused. But then also, if you have lots of money, or no matter how much money you have, and you have scarcity, and you never give, then you never have the opportunity to watch God use you as a blessing and also then provide so that that which you've given is given back to you and even more. 
Scarcity will destroy your faith in God. Well, how about this one? I'm sorry. This is the point where you pray, Jesus, help me not to resist. Remember I asked for help on that one? Jesus, help. God, help us. If I believe the lie of scarcity that I don't have enough sleep or enough energy, my priorities will revolve around my rest and my comfort. And so our spouse and our children and our friends will see that loving well happens when you feel good and only when you feel good. I have a dear friend who suffered regular abuse as a child. Night after night, she would cry out to Jesus to rescue her. There were multiple times when Jesus himself showed up in her room and said, I have people who are coming to you right now. And then they didn't come. And you know what happened to those people? Jesus himself showed up into their room at night, in the middle of the night, and said, you need to go rescue this little girl right now. And they got up and got dressed and thought to themselves, I, I don't want to be this tired. I'll do it in the morning. And they went back to bed. And so this little girl, her abuse continues. Jesus showed up. And the life scarcity, the, oh, I don't want to have enough, I, I don't want to be tired, caused her so much pain and caused her to doubt God. The lie scarcity destroys faith. So, do you want to be Felix? Do you? Okay, then. Of course not. But there's something you need to understand. You have people right now in your life that are waiting, like Paul is waiting with Felix. They're waiting. They're waiting for you to love them well. They, needed to be, they need to be loved well. They're your family. They're your children, your spouses, your grandchildren, your friends. They're the, they're the people, the messed up people sitting next to you. So let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to go against, to go to war against the lie of scarcity in your life, in your life that you don't have enough, that there's only so much love to go around? There's only so much money to go around. There's only so much energy to go around. The life scarcity is, is well, there's, it's just a pie, and I, I got to keep what's mine because if somebody asks me for some, the pie will never get bigger. But every parent here knows in your bones that the moment that you welcome your child into your life, the love that you have in your family does what? It grows. It always grows. That's evidence that scarcity is a lie from the pit of hell. You want to go to war with me against it? Come on, baby. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Build faith in your family and in your marriage and in this church by crushing the evil of scarcity and choosing to love well. Let me, let me just encourage you here. Let me encourage you here. Oh, my gosh, your faith and generosity is bananas bonkers amazing. I see you loving well all the time. I'm not saying you're not doing it. I'm saying let's fan the flame and keep on going. We have learned how to move from thoughts and prayers to loving well in this church. So last week, here's is Brittany. This is Brittany's birthday. Here's Brittany. There's Zed and Brittany. Brittany and Kathy go to the second service. And Kathy, her mom, asked her friends if they could send Brittany a card and just put a single $1 bill in it because she just loves, you know, she just be great. 
And so, oh, man, we love Brittany and we love Kathy. And the men's group here had built Kathy and Brittany like a, a, a handicap accessible ramp in their front yard so that like Kathy could get up. And like, we've loved Brittany and Kathy. And, and, and they've come to churches, a lot of the churches on the Central Coast, and, and a lot of the churches have done it right in the middle. They've done nothing. Some of them and said, could you please not come back? Your, Brittany's too loud. And a couple of them said, thoughts and prayers, but you guys, you guys have loved them well. So this last week when Kathy's like, hey, could you send a card? I thought to myself, oh, we'll do that. And I told the staff, let's get a birthday card. Everybody bring a couple of bucks and we'll give Bert, uh, Brittany a birthday card, which we did. And then, then I was talking to Zedekiah's mom, Debbie, and Debbie and I do the prayer retreats together, and uh, De- Debbie's in a Bible study with Kathy, one of our DNA groups. And I said, oh, man, we, we got a card for Brittany, and she goes, yeah, I'm getting 30, because <laughs> Brittany was turning 30. And I was like, that is so sweet. And then I was actually with Debbie as she was getting cards, and she said, well, I just need to go to the place to get stickers. And so we were, we were with friends, and we were getting more stickers and more stickers and more stickers. And I'm like, why are we buying all these stickers? And then I watched her as she put a dollar bill in each one of those 30 cards, and then she wrote a note, a different note, in each one of the 30 cards. And then she put stick. She made each card as though it was her only card. And then she put it on Facebook. Um, hey, send, send, send cards to Brittany and Kathy. And, and this last week... Brittany and Kathy received over 100 cards in the mail. Yeah. And, and what I realized is this, is that I had sent one card with all of us as a staff, and I thought, oh, I'm loving Brittany and Kathy. And what Debbie taught me was, actually, if we could go from loving, and it was more than just thoughts and prayers, we were, we were doing a good job loving Brittany and Kathy, but what, Brittany, what Debbie taught me is that if we take it that next step to love well, well, now when you go to Kathy and Brittany's house, hundreds of cards are pasted all over the walls, and the anger and frustration that has marked Brittany's last six months has now disappeared, and she is just full of joy. And when we sang to her happy birthday last Sunday at church, she now watches that on repeat. She goes, it's me, it's me, it's me. We got to take her shopping for the first time this last week. She'd never been shopping for her own clothes before. I saw her, she's wearing hot pink leather pants. <laughs> right. I asked Debbie, why did you do 30 cards? And, and, and she, she actually said, can I, can I write you a note that you would read? And I said, sure. And she says this. Debbie doesn't want any accolades. She wants you to love well. That's the point, okay? She says, hi, church family. You saw how grateful and, and blessed Kathy and Brittany were to receive mail. mail. I, I have lupus, and I'm not able to do all the things I want to because my body doesn't cooperate. But writing letters I could do. And it made me feel like I was really making a difference. So I have two challenges for you, church. One, why don't we start an encouragement team of folks that can write letters or send texts or call and check on others, not just when they're sick, but just because it feels good to feel like we belong and someone sees us. You want to be a part of that team? 
You can. And secondly, Debbie writes, I was able to write cards for Brittany, but I want... But what I can't do is fix up the studio they have behind their home. Kathy needs a space where she can have some alone time or visitors or whatever. They live in a um, 900-square-foot house with a kitchen, a living room, and then Brittany and Kathy's bedrooms. And so when Brittany is, is screaming and is frustrated and is angry, she has nowhere to go when she has home health care there. So Debbie writes... Caring for Brittany is Kathy's life and joy, but sometimes mama needs a place to just be quiet. They have the space, but we need help with flooring and building a wall and electrical and painting and furnishings. These lovely ladies could use this, so what are we waiting for? So April is going to be the coordinator of this. If you want to be on the encouragement team or you want to lend some of your expertise and all of this stuff, we can love Brittany and Kathy well. Amen? She says, thank you for having the faith and showing the love you do. This church is just amazing. Listen, you guys, this last year we housed families that were homeless. That's loving people well. You all decided to give $85,000 of your own money for our little church to people in this church in need, people literally sitting next to you right now that they bought Christmas gifts and back-to-school clothing and all the things that they needed. And we, people who are going through chemotherapy got kitchens and bathrooms redone and medical expenses paid and all the things because of your generosity. As you love well. So last week, last week, I told you that we gave away last year $183,000. I've never been a part of this church that we've done anything like that before. And I almost never talk about money from the pulpit. But this is, I mean, I was just like, oh, my gosh, you guys are awesome. 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 Right? So Monday, I come in a staff meeting, and Johanna, who's our accountant, and Rob, who's kind of over all of our facilities and money, they, they have tears in their eyes. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no. Like, we out of money, right? Like, we gave it all away, and they're like, Annie, I'm sorry, but this is it. Like, you know, like, uh, you know, turn off the lights and shut the doors. We've sold the properties. We've got to pay our debts, you know. And Johanna, with tears in her eyes, said that last Sunday, on that little rickety offering box that's sitting in the back by the sound booth, you know, the one that's not even screwed into, like, studs. It's just hanging on by drywall. In that box was a check for $50,000 for the deacons. So, y'all, we got money to remodel Brittany and Kathy's play. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And all of us are like, what are you kidding me? This is nuts. And then Rob, he's just like his lip is quivering, his tears are running down his cheeks, and he goes, and then someone in the same box put in a check for $180,000. Listen, whoever you are, God bless you. I have no idea who gave it, but God bless you. Look, we've never had this kind of generosity in our church before. What in the world is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. When I give to a church, I don't want at the end of the day for the church to go, we have more money in our bank account. You know what that is? It's 